Uh, a few years ago, I read a book uh, by a gentleman named Malcolm Gladwell, and he's written several bestsellers. And in this particular book he wrote was called Outliers. And uh, I read this book and I really enjoyed it. Uh, in it, he talks about people who are excellent, kind of the top of their field in all different uh, areas. And, and so what he does in this book is he starts to think about why that's the case. And he's gone through all this research and all this study. He's a great storyteller. And he tells all these different stories of why people grow and, and get to the very top, like the, the very top of whatever field it is. And he, he takes a whole bunch of different things. He talks about some of the reasons under it. But there was one chapter in that book that really stood out to me. And it's not even an idea that was his own, but just the way he explained it. And he was talking about this thing that's this commonly referred to as the, the 10,000 hour rule. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. But the idea of this 10,000-hour rule is to become an expert at anything that it takes 10,000 hours of practice towards that. And so he goes through and he shows all these different people in different ways and how that's true. And I remember, and I'm going by memory here, so <clears throat> pretty much what he said in the sense of he's talking about someone, I believe, that played the piano or played a musical instrument. He said somebody can become very proficient at, say, the piano by practicing four to 6,000 hours over their lifetime. But then to be able to teach the instrument, to really master it and be able to teach it to somebody else, it's six to 7,000 hours or even more. And then eight to nine, somewhere in there, you start to have people that are professional musicians that are actually paid to play this instrument and, and be recording, uh, recording musicians. But then he went on to say that every single person, that he, all the research he had done, anyone that w- was part of an orchestra, that got paid for people to come and sit and watch them play the piano, that every single one of them had spent 10,000 hours and kind of broke that down and why that was the case. And so part of it is just a simplicity of like being great at anything is working hard at it, Uh, being trained by constant practice, spending hours after hours after hours. And as I was thinking about that, as it pertains to what we started talking about last week in kind of this short series of how we grow up into the fullness of a biblical worldview, really growing as a disciple of Jesus, seeking to follow him in every area of our life, that the same is true, that there's constant practice involved in that, constant thinking, being renewed uh, by, by thinking through what God has told us. And so Paul will say that in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God tells us to love us, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a thinking element that's involved in that. And so I was thinking about it in Hebrews chapter five, the author of Hebrews is there's much warning in Hebrews about falling away and becoming complacent and not continuing to seek God. And in chapter five of Hebrews, the author says that you should now be mature as believers. And he's talking uh, to the early church and he's encouraging them. He says, you should now not be drinking milk, but you should be taking solid food. And he uses the analogy of a child that's still taking a bottle. And he says, as you grow up, you no longer should be taking a bottle. And then he says this in Hebrews chapter five, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The powers of discernment trained by constant practice, continuing to think through what is true, what God has revealed to us, what he has said to us. And so when we think about a biblical worldview, you know, one of the hard things over the last six months, the craziness of our world, 
I've had so many different conversations with different people. And what happens, and we all do this at different times, we want to distill things down to one thing. Well, the answer to this is, and somebody will make a big pronouncement of what it is or what it isn't. And I have found myself in those conversations over and over. Someone will say something that's true, that's absolutely true. And I would say biblically true. And I go, yes, that's true. But the Bible says more about that. Yes, that's true. But there's actually a little more to think about than just that. And I'm not saying that we... We all do this at different times. I'm not putting anyone down for that. But what happens is we kind of latch on to our favorite verse or our favorite piece. And we go, that's the answer. But the Bible is, says a lot. And it's nuanced. And it speaks to so many different things. And so to really have a fully formed biblical worldview, it takes powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Continuing to look at God's word. Continuing to take all of what it says, not just part of what it says. And so today I want us to continue to think about how do we develop a biblical worldview? How do we grow as disciples? We say here all the time that being a disciple of Jesus is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. How we let the word speak to everything that we are and we do. And so how do we continue to grow in that? And so last week what we said, Colossians chapter 2, Paul writing to the church in Colossae. And he says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. And he talks about if we're not seeing everything through that, that we're prone uh, to be deluded and deceived. And then we looked at how Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 to his disciples, it says he opened the scriptures and showed them everything that pertained to them. And he teaches them how to read the Bible. And he says, all of it points to me and what I've come to do. And so we talked about last week, the starting point foundationally has to be that we have to see that Jesus is the center of all human history and all of scripture is pointing us to him. But today I want us to think about what Jesus tells us when he says here in John 15, abide in my word and my word in you and apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we start to see, well, Jesus is the sinner and he is our Lord and what he teaches us. And he tells us it's by abiding in his word. And so what we're going to do really for the next couple of weeks is really think about how do we grow up in abiding in God's word. And so what I want to do for the next probably three weeks, this is actually part one. I'm going to give you six big things, and we're only going to cover the first two today as we think about what it means to abide in his word and and how do we kind of grow in that. And some just foundational things, if we are truly going to be Christians that have a biblical worldview that is letting God's word stand over us, we need to be growing in all these areas. And so the six things, the first one is this, you cannot grow in a Christian worldview apart from the word of God. And we're going to look at that in John 15. And that's pretty straightforward. That's pretty simple, but it is so foundational. We must start there. You cannot have a biblical worldview if you are not abiding in God's word. Secondly, the Bible is the word of God and you can trust that it is true. And I'm going to spend the second part of this sermon just a little bit of apologetic of kind of showing you that you can trust God's word. That it is taking it on faith, but there's a lot of evidence that we can trust God's word. That's the second one. The third one, your mind being transformed and growing in this. It's not just an academic pursuit, but it is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't just see it as like, man, I just study really hard and I memorize some stuff. And then that happens. There is a spiritual element of what God is doing in us through the Holy Spirit. Fourth thing, as we read the Bible, there are rules and helps for interpretation to help get us to the right interpretation. And those can be learned and they can be honed and we can grow in those. But it's important that we're aware of them. Fifth, 
we need to learn how to read along the Bible and across the Bible. And what I mean by that is biblical theology, which is the big story of everything God's doing, the art from the beginning of time to the end of time and what he's doing and how we fit into that. But across the Bible is what we call systematic theology. What does the Bible say about each different subject? What does the Bible tell us about who man is and who God is and what our issues are and how God meets them? And if we don't understand everything the Bible says about, for say, man, we can easily get a distortion. We'll take one little part and we'll hone in on that and we'll miss the fullness of what God is saying. And so it's very important that we read across the Bible systematically and along the Bible, the storyline. And so we'll talk about how we do that. And then lastly, as we spend time and we abide in God's word, the Bible tells us it's a community project, that we need one another in that. It's not just me and God alone, but God saves us into a family of faith, and then we're called to grow up into that together, and we need one another in it. And so that's where we're going for the next few weeks. But today we're going to start with the first one there. We cannot grow up into the fullness of what God calls us to in a biblical worldview apart from abiding in God's word. And it's so straightforward and in a lot of ways it's simple. And what Jesus says is very clear and direct, but it is of the utmost importance when we think about being transformed in the way we think and the way we see things around us. And so look again just there at John chapter 15. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I really want you to kind of Hone in here on verse four and following. And so Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you love me, keep my commandments You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so what Jesus says here in so many ways, the the, the vast sum of what he says right there at the beginning of John chapter 15, I think is very clear. It's not real hard to understand. Now, whenever we read the Bible, we want to think about the context. This is Jesus with the disciples in the upper room just hours before he will be arrested and then crucified. And so Thursday night before he'll be crucified on Friday morning. And he's preparing them, knowing that they're going to be bewildered over the next 48 hours. Knowing that in a short time he's going to ascend to heaven after his glorious resurrection. And he's not going to physically, bodily be with them in the way he has. And he's preparing them for this and he's telling them this and he's getting them ready. And he says this thing here and it's not cryptic and it's not buried under a whole lot of uh, social uh, distance or cultural things that we miss. He just uses a real simple analogy. And he says, just as a branch that gets cut off from the vine or a branch, oftentimes uh, during the week when I drive in here, we have all these big, beautiful trees. So this be branches laying on the ground whenever it rains or whenever it's windy. And there they are, dead branches laying on the ground. And we understand that, right? 
a branch falls off or it breaks off from the tree and it's dead. It's no longer connected to the thing that feeds it. I think most of us know basic biology. The tree, the trunk goes down into the ground and the root system goes out and that's what grabs the water and the nutrients and feeds the tree and the branches and how it grows. And Jesus says, you are like the branch. And if you are not connected to me and you're not abiding in me, you'll die. You'll wither up. You'll break off. And then he says, you won't bear fruit. You won't be bearing fruit by being connected to the source of all life, which is me. And again, Jesus, just like Paul was telling us last week, is saying, I'm the center of everything. And he says, you abide in me and you abide in my word and you will bear much fruit. And he says that in in verse seven, if you abide in me and my words in you. And then he goes on to say, not only will you bear much fruit, but you get to verse 11 And you see this there, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The fullness of joy is available to you, but you need to be abiding in my word and my word in you. And apart from me, this will not work. You can't do it. And so what Jesus says is so clear and straightforward that you must be abiding in my word. You must be walking closely with me. Abide just means to stay there. To be connected. To each day walk with him and spend time with him and seek him. And he says, when you do that, you're going to bear fruit. That is the way that you were created to be. And in doing so, you will have a joy that is beyond all that you can imagine. But he makes it real clear, does he not? Do you see that there? In verse 7, in verse 8. You abide in me and my word in you and you ask whatever you wish and this is what God's going to do for you and then there will be a great joy, he says in verse 11. Which, by the way, when we do this and we read the passage together and say, do you see that in verse 7 and verse 8? Do you see that in verse 11 that your joy may be full? We're developing a biblical worldview. It's not my words. It's not my idea. Jesus is the Lord of all, and he says, this is how it works. You abide in me, and you abide in my word, and you will bear much fruit, and you will have a great joy. And we're letting what God says and what his word says and the words that Jesus has spoken stand over us. And that's what it means to think biblically, to have a Christian worldview, that I'm going to let what God says stand over me. And so Jesus tells us this. And he says that this is the way in which we stay connected by abiding in his word. And so each day we want to turn over everything that we're dealing with, being transformed by the renewal of our mind through the lens of what God has said and what he's done for us in Jesus. So Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Hebrews tells us for those who have the power of discernment trained by constant practice, continue to come back to what God has done. And who he is and think through the implications and have this dwelling in you, abiding in that daily. And there's an important reason. Jesus tells us you can't do anything apart from me because he is the source of all that is good. But there's also an important thing that I want us to consider in the world that we live in. We are constantly bombarded with different worldviews. We are constantly bombarded with lies We are constantly bombarded with different ways of thinking about our world and what's around us. And we are prone to wander. 
right? We're prone to being influenced by all of that. And so when we were looking at Colossians 2 last week, where Paul says, in Christ in whom is hidden all wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I'm telling you this so that no one deludes you with plausible arguments. He says, if you don't stay connected to Jesus, just as Jesus is saying here in John chapter 15, you'll begin to be deluded with what the world says. And then Paul goes on to say that we looked out last week, be rooted and built up in him so that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And so real clearly, we are open to deception when we're not abiding in God's word. And the Bible's consistent on this point. That we easily start to take in all these other things. There's no neutral. There's no like, I I get saved and I become a believer and I say, yes, Jesus, and I put my trust in you. And now I'll just drift along until he returns or I die. It's like being in the river and the current's taking you. And the world is so powerful in the way that things are, it'll just continue to pull you down if you're not abiding in him daily. And so the Bible tells us that over and over. And it can be very deceptive because of our, our sinful inclination. We've spent a lot, of times in Roman, a lot of time in Romans as we've been walking through Romans about our sinfulness, the sinfulness of our heart. We just spent time in, in Romans chapter 7 a couple weeks ago where Paul's saying, like, my flesh is still here. My sinful inclinations are still there and they're pulling at me. And there's this battle waging. And it's hard because we get bombarded with all these ideas and it's deceptive because our flesh likes it. Our sinful nature goes, that sounds pretty good. And so we're constantly listening to what the world says rather than what God's word says. We're prone to to go towards that. And so I, I said this last week, but it's important for us to think about If you're getting your worldview and you're developing it by sitting in front of a television watching cable news hours on end each day and you're not spending time in God's word, you're going to be deluded. You're going to be taken captive by philosophies that are at odds with what God's word clearly says. And part of the reason is, as we listen to it and we take that in, the things that are there, our flesh likes it. The sinfulness of our heart likes the idea that truth is subjective and you can believe whatever you want. Yeah, I kind of like that. I can pick and choose. All the things that kind of push against me, I'll just move those over there and I won't deal with that. Or we like that you don't have to submit to authority. You make your decisions and do whatever you want. Or we like that... We can say uh, change comes through a heavy authoritarian hand instead of what the Bible says, that it comes by experiencing God's grace and being gracious and kind to people. Or we like the idea that we can just throw those people aside because they don't measure up to the way I like versus we need to love all people in the same way that Jesus has loved us. And our flesh likes that. And so we're, dis- we're, we're susceptible to it. And so when we start to listen to those ideals of the world versus what God's word says, it's very quickly this battle that wages. And so Jesus says, you abide in me and you abide in my word. Now, it doesn't perfectly illustrate this, but it reminds me of a story. I had a coach who used to tell this every year. 
And maybe you've heard this before, but the, it goes like uh, it's, it's an old uh, Native American, a, a Cherokee Indian, and, and he's uh, talking to his grandson. And it says, the, the old Cherokee says to his grandson that there's a battle inside of every person. And he said, my son, the battle is between two wolves inside of all of us. One is evil. It's anger and jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. And he says, and the other is good. It is joy and peace and love and hope, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, well, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee says, the one that you feed. I don't know if you've ever heard that story before. In biblical worldview, there's some problems with that story, right? I'm going to stop and go, okay, that illustrates the point of our flesh versus the spirit. Now, if I'm going to have a biblical worldview, when they tell that story, it's like you have good and evil in it, and it's up to you to decide which one. That's not true. You're sinful and broken, and it's Jesus who brings you from death to life and makes you a new creation. But now that the spirit dwells in you and as God is there, we cooperate with him and we continue to seek him and we seek him daily and abide in him. And that grows in us and we're seeing more clearly who he is and what he's done. Or we can go back to our old way of thinking. We can go back to our flesh. And so although the story is not perfect, there is some truth in that. There is some truth in that we can go back to our old way of thinking. And there's that battle waging. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 7. It's Paul's saying that. And so listening to our flesh or listening to the spirit dwelling in God's word. Are we engaging in emotionally charged lies that we're bombarded with? And so our job is to abide in God's word. To trust him. To seek him daily. To seek him above all else. Because simply put, you cannot have a biblical worldview without abiding in God's word. It doesn't work. And so Jesus tells us that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so abide in his word. And so here's my question to you. And it's kind of part one of this. What does your walk look like with the Lord? Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you abiding in his word? Are you spending more time having your worldview developed by what God has spoken to us or by what the television says or what your phone says or the things that you read or the, where do you give your time? How is your thinking being formed? Because Jesus tells us apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we must be abiding in God's word. Now, second part, as we think about this, we say abide in God's word. How do we know what's God's word and how can we trust it? When we read John 15 and Jesus says, abide in my word and my word in you. How do we trust that what we're reading is God's word? From a biblical worldview today, there's attacks all the time on the Bible, on God's word. It's ridiculous and it's uh, myths and it can't be trusted, and it's just an old book that's regressive, and why do we spend time on that? And as a Christian, seeking to have a biblical worldview, we should have some sort of answer for that. The hope 
being ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, as Peter tells us. And so my question is, when someone says that, or you hear those things, what does your thought process look like? Do I trust that this is God's word? Am I holding the very words of God, or is this just an old book that maybe has some good things and maybe not? Or is this the authoritative word of God that he's spoken to us? So I had a professor who used to say in seminary that what you hold in your hands when you hold the Bible is a book that was written over 3,000 years ago, over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents from every different background imaginable. Many who never knew each other and were separated by hundreds or even thousands of years, but yet somehow they have written the most cohesive, beautiful story ever written in the history of man. This thing that you hold in your hands is truly remarkable. It's a miracle. The people from all over, from different walks of life, wrote this story that tells this beautiful picture of the God of the universe who is pursuing you. You have in your hands God's word. And so oftentimes when we talk about that, we go to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And he says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And we say, this is God's word and it is breathed out by God. And we say that, and that is true. I believe we can trust what Paul's saying as he writes to Timothy. But let's be honest with the way we think through this. I can read that to you and I can tell you that and you can go, yeah, okay, so the Bible says it's God's word. Isn't that kind of circular reasoning? The Bible says it. So that's it. How do I trust that? And so here's what I want to do for just a second. I'm going to do this quickly. Just a couple of big things. Yes, you can trust it. It's not blind faith. You don't have to check your mind at the door. God says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have evidence There's much to look at that says that, yes, this is the definitive word of God. And so I just want to tell you a couple things real briefly. First, this book that we hold, the Bible is the most overwhelming attested book of antiquity in terms of manuscripts. A manuscript is a handwritten copy. And so if you go and you look at the books of antiquity, Like you can go and look at Plato or Tacitus or Caesar or Homer or any of these books that kind of go back to the same period. And what you will find is we usually have between two and maybe 15 to 20 manuscripts. And of those two to 15 manuscripts, the earliest that we have any of them dates to about a thousand years after it was written. And so we say that and we go, well, yeah, I trust that this is what Homer wrote or this is what Caesar wrote. But when it comes to the Bible, people go, well, we can't trust it. You know how many manuscripts we have of the Greek New Testament? Over 5,000. We have 5,000 plus manuscripts. And the oldest we have is from the Gospel of John. And it was found in Egypt in 120 AD. About 30 years after it was written. 
And so what we can do and what we can take with those 5,000 plus manuscripts is we take all these and we can trace where they came from and where they overlap and you can triangulate and this is what we come to. What you hold in your hands when you look at the New Testament is 99.5% exactly what the apostles wrote. Of that 0.5% that we're, there's some debate on. And those few passages, none of them have anything that would change the core doctrines of our faith. None. And so simply put, when you open your Bible and what you hold in your hands is what the apostles wrote 2,000 years ago. And you can trust that. And you can trust that from history. You can trust that from archaeology. Not just because of what Paul writes in Second Timothy chapter 3. Although I believe that's true. And so we have the most overwhelmingly attested book in antiquity. You can trust that what you're reading is what the apostles wrote. The second thing is sometimes people will say, well, the Bible is, is not, uh, it's, uh, what's the right way to say it? Um, it's not really trusted. It can't be trusted. It's too, uh, it's legends that built up over time. And yes, maybe that's what they wrote down, but they would have embellished and it's not really true. But the, the problem is this, for a legend or a myth to develop over a lot of time and be embellished, it has to take place over several successive generations. And historians can show you exactly why that's the case. And so what we have in the Bible is that the New Testament was all written before 100 AD. John's revelation, the book of Revelation of John, was the last, probably in the 90s. We can attest that the papyrus I was just telling you about of John's gospel, we can work back and see that it had to be written by the 90s because of the copies that they found in Egypt and how long it would have taken. And so you don't have to take that on faith. The Apostle John wrote the gospel of John and he wrote it by 90 AD. But then we can work back and we know that Luke wrote Luke and Acts before John and we can look at the eternal evidence and go, he wrote that probably by about 62 AD. And Matthew and Mark predate that. And so we're now into the 50s for those to have been written. Almost all of Paul's letters are written before the 60s. And so all of a sudden you have this overwhelming evidence that the scriptures, the New Testament, were written between 30 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so what that means is there was not enough time for it to be uh, made up stories and myths that could take hold. When eyewitnesses write down what they saw, and if they're making things up, people who were there would go, wait a second, that's not what happened. But the eyewitnesses wrote it down within 30 to 60 years after. Now, one of the questions that comes is, okay, 30 to 60 years, but isn't that a long time? Why did they write 30, wait 30 years to write it down? And so what we do is we look at it with our modern 21st century eyes, Western ideas. And we go, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, Book of Antiquity was in an oral culture in which students would memorize what the rabbi taught them. That was the expectation in an oral co- culture. And so Jesus' closest followers memorized his sayings. In fact, when you read the Bible, they're in the way Jesus spoke was in an easy, memorizable way which was common of rabbis at the time. And so they memorized it and then they told it and then they said it again. And they, no student of a rabbi 
felt like they could take the liberty to just say what they wanted. They were to accurately represent what their teacher says. And so we go, whoa, that's, that's not the way we think. And so I remember having a professor to, to illustrate this point. So he had a student from Korea in one of his classes. My professor, he had written a couple books. And he said on the exam, he had some questions. And uh, this student that was uh, Korean, he said he sat down and he did the essay. And he said he wrote four pages word for word from his book. That this is his professor, this is his teacher. And so I'm here to learn from you. So I'm going to memorize what you have said on the subject. Page after page, word for word. Culturally, that's not out of place at all. Now, it seems strange to us today as Americans in the 2020, but the fact that Jesus' followers memorized and then could write this down and they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they write down what Jesus said. We can trust that these are eyewitnesses that have written down and we now hold in our hands what Jesus taught them. And so when he says in John 15, abide in my words and my words in you, we have God's word. We have it that we can trust it right in front of us. And so there's one last part I'll give you, and then we'll, we'll end with this. You know, when people say the, the marks of it, it's legend and it grew up over time and it's can't trust it. But the truth is when you read the Gospels in particular, and I'll just focus on those for a minute, they bear all the, all the marks of eyewitness, of historical fact. And, and I want you to consider this. It was something that I had never understood until somebody explained it to me. When the Gospels were written, there were books of history. There were people writing history, and that was a normal thing. And you write down what you saw, and you take good notes and want to represent it accurately. But there was no such thing as realistic fiction. In fact, it wouldn't be invented for 1,500 years later. It didn't exist. And so if you read a work of fiction at this time, there's no detail. Like today, we would say we read a book, and it says, you know, he had long hair and he was sweating from his brow. And, all, and we're used to that. It's realistic. It didn't exist at this time. And then you open up the Gospels and you read in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus was asleep on a cushion as the storm rose up. So, whoa, some detail. It starts to tell you about some of the very specific things. And they pulled in the nets and there were 153 fish. And there's all these details there. And so C.S. Lewis, the great... Christian apologist who was also a professor of literature at Oxford. Brilliant man. He says, when we come to the Gospels, he says, I've been reading poems and romance and vision literature, legends and myths all my life, and I know what they are like. And none of them are like this. Of the Gospels, there's only two possible views. Either it's reportage, it's eyewitness, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative that no one else would ever do for another 1500 years and then he go on to say well that's a miracle so his point is this when we read the new testament when we read the scriptures we have eyewitnesses their accounts that we have greatly attested that what they saw and what they wrote down is actually what they wrote and we can trust that this is God's word. And so when we talk about abiding in God's word, abiding in Jesus's words and what he tells us, what you hold in his hand is what they wrote down. That they were there and they witnessed it. 
and they would go on to be martyred and killed for what they said, holding fast to it to death. And what we have is this beautiful picture of God of the universe who loves us so much that he's come for us. And Jesus says, you abide in my word and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we cannot develop a biblical worldview apart from God's word. And you can trust that what you hold in your hands is truly God's word. And so as we begin to develop, I would just ask you this question. What does that look like for you? And if you go, man, I'm, I'm not doing that well. Well, the good news is you're not saved by doing that well. But there is a direct correlation of growing up into a biblical worldview by abiding in God's word. And so I'd encourage you as we continue to walk through a biblical worldview to continue to grow in that. If you need help with how to begin to do that, if you want to learn more about how we know all these things, I've got a very detailed outline that has all the footnotes of just the things I'm touching on. Because that helps us grow in our understanding and our confidence in that. And so let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the good news of what you've done for us. I thank you that you love us so much that you have made yourself known, that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can know and love you. We thank you that you have given us your word. Uh, Help us to abide more fully in what you have told us. I pray that we'd want, that you would spark in us a great desire to love you more and more each day by spending time in your word. Pray that you would meet us in the midst of that. I pray for each one here. As we go from this place this week, that we would open our Bibles, that we would seek you in it, and we'd be overwhelmed with the glory of who you are and what you're doing as we spend time with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This is now the time in our